Welcome to the John Brown University Chapel podcast, recorded in the historic Cathedral of the Ozarks in Salem Springs, Arkansas. This week's chapel speaker was Dr. Keith Jagger, University Chaplain at John Brown University. Prior to coming to JBU, Keith served in pastoral ministry in Thunder Bay, Ontario. Keith earned his doctoral degree in New Testament at St. Andrews in Scotland. All right, so how are we doing? That's positive. That's definitely positive. Grandparents, welcome. How are we doing? Yeah. It's really nice to be with you all here to, today. I'm really proud of these guys, and so I can't imagine what that's like for you. Um, my grandparents were a really important part of my life, and I'm really grateful that God has gifted us with enough life to be able to experience two, three, four generations sometimes of family. If you, like me, don't have any grandparents left, um, I hope, my prayer is that, and, or if your grandparents aren't here today, my prayer is that um, you do find some people of wisdom, some elders in, in your life to learn from and to honor and to, um, to encourage. I, I think I find that generations usually fight with one another, but isn't it a blessing to have a generation between generations? <laughs> It's always the gift from the Lord, special gift. Well, I'm glad you're here today. Welcome. Today, as we open the scriptures, I invite you to listen to these descriptor words. Living in a moment of need. Survival mode. Made all the best plans, but are now having to scramble. Plans failed, frustrations high, temper short, pressure is building. That sounds a lot to me what the last month of my, last, of my college years felt like as the semester came to a close. But I'm also, I'm not just describing maybe some of us today. Um, I'm also describing today's scene in numbers of the story of the Exodus generation who we've been following throughout this spring semester. In the desert still, and for a second time coming to a place where the three million people in the company have no water. So other than this part of the story of the Old Testament just being a really good story, the Exodus generation teaches us what it is to be the people of God, especially in difficult times where there's no sustenance. Um, And it has so much to do, this specific story today has so much to do um, with our failure sometimes to cultivate a culture of worship in our communities and how the mercies of the Lord um, relate to some of our failures. So with that cheery note, let's jump in. Numbers chapter 20, hear the word of the Lord. The Israelites, the whole congregation came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month and the people stayed in Kadesh. Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation So they gathered together against Moses and against Aaron. If you remember, the first time this happened, way back in Exodus 17, some 38 years prior, where God told Moses to, when he was confronted with this waterless desert, to go and take his staff, which he had used to part the the Red Sea, and strike it against a rock. And when Moses did as he had commanded, water gushed out, and the people were provided for. Paul tells us many generations later that somehow mysteriously Christ was here in this rock providing for them. 
But now they're here, years down the line from that first experience, making their way to the promised land, and now they're really close by. They're almost there, and Moses' sister Miriam falls there in the desert. And though Moses is in grief, and while the people are still struggling with their twinges of hopelessness, they begin to grumble. They're much further along now and their healing from the, the slavery in Egypt has taken much deeper roots, but there's no food and no water. And you can imagine how quickly patience runs thin and turns into hunger and hunger turns into being hangry and how that turns quickly into a crowd who is irate in the situation. And so they say some harsh things to Moses who will teach them eventually in about a year's time as they're on the borderlands of the promised land he teaches them in his final sermon in Deuteronomy that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. They're not quite there yet, and Moses does what he knows how to do. He goes from the situation and presents his prayers to the Lord. I love that about Moses, that his first instinct confronted with a real life situation is always to run to prayer. So he brings his prayers and petitions, and God answers in quite a similar way this second time than he did the first time. And this first time probably had become a legend among the people. Do you remember when we just left Egypt and we had no idea where we were going and no idea how long this would be, that the Lord would provide miraculously out of a stream that was hidden under the desert sands? And so... Moses once again comes to the Lord and the Lord says, again, there is a, a stream under this barrenness and the water will come out. But this time God tells him something a little bit different. He says, don't hit the stick against the rock this time. This time just speak to the rock. And we ultimately realize that God's intention is to show his pr providence, his miraculous ability to provide for us uh, even without human agency. So. Speak to the stone, Moses, don't hit it this time. I think this is a situation that we find ourselves in a lot in life, so, although sometimes we're not patient enough to realize it. We come to times when God wants to provide for us or provide for the people we're providing for, and he doesn't want really us to do much to have agency in it. He wants to, to do it. He wants to, to, to show how he can provide for us even though uh, there's no other explanation other than that God has done it. This is the life of faith. Sometimes God wants us to move towards the desires we have in our heart, patiently and prayerfully, and there's nothing we need to do about it just other than to speak out our need and watch him provide. But Moses, for whatever reason we can imagine, goes off, off the script here. And for doing so, he's gonna face a severe consequence, a profound limitation of his life. And a consequence which might actually seem a little bit out of proportion. Um, so most of these stories have to do with the Israelites failing, but this one has to do with Moses' failure. So Moses and Aaron gather the assembly together and he says, listen, you rebels. Uh, that wasn't in God's instructions. <laughs> okay, Moses is in grief. He's really frustrated. This is not a very merciful response. Uh, for Moses. Listen, you rebels. He's at the end. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted up his staff, maybe this time trusting in the staff more than God, hit the rock, 
and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their livestock drank. And at first, all seems well. But Moses did go off script. The water came gushing out. People were provided for. But shortly after, the Lord says to Moses, because you did not trust in me to show my holiness, or in this case, I think God's holiness, we can understand as his powerful desire to provide for us. Because you did not trust me to show my holiness, because you did not trust me before the Israelites, therefore you shall not enter the land that I have given them. And so it was after 38 years leading them, one seemingly small mistake ruins Moses' chance of going into the promised land. Now, we might, in defense of Moses, raise his cause. Does such a small moment of disobedience outweigh a lifetime of, perfect, of almost perfect service? Moses had, in fact, murdered an, an Egyptian, if we remember, and God still chose him. That act probably seems to have disqualified him more in our eyes than this apparent disobedience. But the people were about to enter a new phase, and God needed a leader who would be careful to be faithful to God's clear directions. This act of disobedience isn't just a one-time incident. It's an incident which reveals a deeper problem going on under the surface of Moses. And if you read what they're about to go through, you can see what a severe mercy this might have been for this old man. We don't know why exactly, and we can, we can speculate, but... After this consequence, there's really not a lot of dialogue between Moses and God, which I find interesting. If I were Moses, I'd, I'd uh, drop my case as quickly as possible. After all these years, after all these, this faithful service, this one thing. But Moses doesn't do that, perhaps as a testament to his maturity. The story simply moves on to the next phase. He just moves on in one of the, into one of the, actually the most important phases of his leadership as he brings the people to the very edge of the land. Now Deuteronomy, which is the end of the story, which we'll get to in a few weeks' time, is Moses' final speech. And the whole book ends with Moses climbing up on Mount Nebo, which is this elevated place on the other side of the Jordan River, a place where you could see virtually all of the Holy Land from this mountain. And before Moses dies, God leads him up on this mountain and showing this whole land stretching, this panoramic view of the land of Abraham that Moses so successfully led the people to. And then Moses dies. But the next time, he shows up one more time in the scriptures uh, as, as a character, and the next time he shows up is during the transfiguration of Jesus. Elijah and Moses standing on the mountains of Galilee, a severe mercy, but a mercy nonetheless, as Moses finally steps his feet onto the soil of the promised land. This moment 3,000 years later, you know, may not feel like a great privilege, but I wonder what Moses may have felt that day. And God has his strange and long ways, and though sometimes we are forced to put our long hopes in God, it is still true nevertheless that his mercies are new every morning, and those mornings come around quite quickly. So I think the lesson that we must draw from this interesting story is that despite our failures, which we have, despite our limitations, which we incur, and sometimes they're very long-lasting, that God's mercies and his grace are more abundant. 
when I was 12 years old, I went out to the farm. My, my family were, were city folk, and my great uncle uh, still had a farm in the family about an hour drive away. And so every once in a while, we would go, and we would uh, go to the farm and spend the weekend there farming with our, our, our country cousins, uh, which was great fun. My great uncle was a man who loved more than anything watching city people fail at farming. Um, uh, he was about 70 at the time, and uh, we were baling hay that day in, in the hay field, which means that the hay had been cut, and you had this, this tractor, this John Deere tractor, which uh, probably at that time was about 90K, worth 90K, and you have this trailer bed uh, being dragged behind on which the young cousins were, and so as the, tra the, the tractor goes over the hay, it gets pulled up into square bales, comes out the machine, the person in front cuts the twine off that had been wrapped around and tosses it back to the cousins in the back to stack. Easy enough, right? Um, about three quarters of the way through, the, the, uh, my uncle puts the tractor in park and hops out and says, all right, Keith, you drive. <laughs> Let's go. I'm, I'm 12. I, I know what a car is. I don't know what a manual transmission is, but I know what a car is. And so we get in. Uh, I get in, and confident enough, I start the, the last few rows, run them over easy enough, right between the, the wheels uh, you go. And my uncle hopped on the back, and he was with the cousins tossing the hay bales up. <laughs> And, um, but when I, when I got to the end, I realized there's about 70 buttons in front of me. And surely you just don't push the brake to stop this thing. So I, I, I kind of panic. I start to bring the tractor around and yell at the back, how do you stop it? And um, my uncle, they, like, they can't hear me. They, they can't, you know, there's too much noise. And so I take, I think, two full laps around the field trying to make a decision about how to stop this machine. And I look back and I just see my uncle going like this. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, I guess I just push the brake. So push the brake, which you don't do. You push the clutch down first, right? So roll it to the end. Push the brake and the, the whole machine comes to a dead stop. And the only thing I see in the rearview mirror is my 70-year-old uncle flying through the air. <laughs> off, this, off this tractor. The good, thing, the good news is the tractor stopped. <laughs> Um, the, bad, the bad news is, is my uncle's on the ground, so, you know, just, like, this is one of those moments that haunt you for years, which it did. And so I get out, and uh, I haven't been in a tractor since, behind the wheel, by the way. Um, so I get out, and my uncle, he's just laughing, like, belly laughing. He thinks it's the, which is like, like, bullet dodge. But, I mean, I think it was, it was years later that memory came up, and it was one of those memories where your breath, you, you breathe in quickly and your breath stops shorts, and you realize, I almost killed my uncle. <laughs> and so, like, this time the bullet was dodged, but life has consequences. Life has real consequences in it. Um, decisions about friendships, Decisions about future, decisions about school. Um, major wars are started by, uh, by, by decisions that people make, and there are major consequences. Car accidents can happen because of decisions that people make, and there are consequences. Sometimes as people of faith, we come under this opinion or per, this idea that we're protected or we're specially provided for uh, or exempt from this natural order of consequence. But after a little living, we find out that's not true. 
And our actions have consequences that can last for a really long time. Ecclesiastes, King Solomon puts his, his uh, piece of wisdom this way. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a foul odor. A little folly in life outweighs wisdom and honor. And you think of Moses, a little folly in life outweighs wisdom and honor. And we realize that life largely consists, uh, or it will consist of cleaning up the messes that we make, dealing with the consequences of our life um, that even so will be filled with meaning. We don't really know Moses' mindset after this moment because he just moves on. Um, but we do have another great figure who gives us a little insight into what a Christian response to terrible mistakes may look like, and that's the Apostle Paul. Listen to what he says. You have heard, no doubt, about my earlier life in Judaism. I was violently persecuting the church of God. I was trying to destroy it. And here's what he says in another passage. I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But listen to how he lives his life despite that failure. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me has not been in vain. Paul learned to make peace with the mistakes and adjust his image of himself accordingly in measure with the grace that has been, had been given to him. God chose Paul still. God honored his strengths. God covered his weaknesses. And Paul, after a lifetime, testifies that God, after all, did not waste his mercies upon him. And I think the key to being able to bear under up this, in this kind of hopeful and peaceful way of living is not a kind of belief that God just is going to cover our sins so that we might as well just live recklessly. If grace abounds, asks Paul in Romans, should we sin all the more? No. The key is not to spray the world around us in our abundant clouds of toxicity. Just to show how much bigger God is to forgive that won't make God happy. The key, I think, is to learn to live carefully. That is, to live with a kind of repentant carefulness or to live responsibly while not slipping into that kind of uh, dazed and confused savior complex. Which, so if we make terrible mistakes and we realize we're capable of them, I think we, we slip into one of two extremes. One is that we just, okay, I'm just gonna live my life recklessly if I can't have any control over it. But on the other hand, we can slip into this kind of paranoid savior complex where we take on the weight of our life and those around us on our shoulders, a weight that will crush us. So let's unpack this a little bit as we land the ship here. This dazed and confused savior complex for the world, and maybe it's what led Moses to strike the rock. I've got to do this after all. If no one else is going to do it, I will. Moses was a person who knew what consequences meant and when you realize we have the power for good or unintended evil, we can get into this reactive hyper-responsibility as if the provision in our life, if we're going to be provided for and the people around us are going to be provided for, it's all on our shoulders. That savior complex believes that unless we succeed in every part of our life project, we'll have no meaning and the people around us will be left wanting. Again, the search after life's meaning is good and providing for people is good, 
but to take the weight of our own fulfillments, all of our hopes is too much for any one of us to bear, we'll only be crushed under the weight of that kind of perfectionism. And when we live like this, we do lose track of life's meaning. We get so narrow focused on success and our responsibility in a hyperactive kind of way that we lose the fact that life all around us is flowering with meaning to be discovered. And then we get focused on our expectations of ourselves, perhaps other people's expectations of us, and we take on expectations that God doesn't even have for us. Um, and the thing is, is God doesn't fall head over heels like he didn't with Moses to stop us doing that. He'll patiently sit aside and wait until we realize that there is enough mercy and enough grace around us to hold our lives. And I think this maybe this kind of issue of hyper-responsibility sometimes burdens those who are facing or going after uh, problems in the world that are generational or uh, that are societal, issues that are so much bigger than any individual. And we begin to think that we can um, solve problems that have have faced us for hundreds of years on our own strength and power. Now we, we are called to face these big problems, but not with this crushing kind of hyper-responsibility. And then sometimes we can, in that kind of posture, we can begin to take on other people's burdens. We can kind of um, wanting to lead people to sources of water, but we start atoning for things that aren't ours to atone for. And yet, so on the one hand, if we don't avoid this hyper-pressure that life is gonna all on our shoulders, um, we avoid the sort of reckless living uh, uh, trap as well. We can live responsibly with a kind of repentant carefulness. And I think responsibility, if I have to get, like, talk about, responsibility seems so stuffy. You be responsible. You know, uh, you'll make the right choice. Um, I, was, <laughs> I said once to a group of teenagers passing my house on Halloween, make good choices. I got egged that night. <laughs> but I love the idea that responsibility is about building margin in our life learning to build a little margin, a little space. Responsibility is not driving bumper to bumper, but giving two cars in front of you and the one in front of you. It's not an adventureless kind of living, um, but we can build margin. I think maybe Moses didn't build the margin he needed into that moment before he struck the rock. Uh, building margin is about lightning speed. So we take a moment rather than rushing up onto the stage of life and creating the next social controversy. Um, before we launch into mic drop moments like Moses is here, take a deep breath, pause, seek community to discernment, seek better sense, and um, take a deep breath before we make rash decisions. Responsibility is about margin. It's about finishing projects before they're due. <sighs> I never did. I was, I was an all-nighter. Basically what I'm describing is living in the kind of way where we really believe that the grace and mercy in God are enough to safeguard our life. And there's three last things that I'd like to encourage us with. The first is that um, as we live in a way that the, we're, we really believe that there's mercy and grace enough for us, we are able to leave memories behind, we are able to leave behind things as a, through a process of repentance and forgiveness. 
so that that which might haunt us can actually lose its power. Mistakes, things which didn't go our way or the way that they were supposed to. If you, if you want to talk more about how this works, how to leave behind that which might haunt us, uh, come find me for a coffee and we can talk about that. So we can leave behind that which may haunt us. We can let Christ deeply fulfill us. You know, the, there are things, mistakes we make and things which don't go our way, which turn out in the long run to be a limitation. Things which never really seem to make their way towards resolution. And when we're in the midst of them, we recognize as Christians, as Paul did, that the things which we long for and seek after can be fulfilled in Christ very deeply. And finally, we can have God's blessing upon us like the Apostle Paul, even through the worst of mistakes. We can have joy in his blessing. And I love the fact that once Paul worked through his past, the early Christians didn't have eyes to see his gift for the world, but, but God did. And God relentlessly called him nevertheless. So I don't know if there are things in your life which may make you think that you're just qualified for service in the kingdom. But the God that we serve as we work through repentance and humility knows that the world needs you nevertheless. The world needs you to stand up, to leave behind what needs to be left behind, and to learn to open your mouth and give the gift to the world that only you can give. And so as we leave today, first, my invitation is to put behind you what needs to be put behind you. And we can work through that if you need to together. Second, tomorrow, if you think you're beyond reach or if you think that you're disqualified for work in the kingdom, even though that there are uh, maybe some major issues in the past, um, learn what it is to give those over into the hands of God. Uh, on Thursday, we have another all worship, all, all music service culminated in communion. And communion is a really wonderful time for believers to take those things which the enemy may, may put on our shoulders to, and tells us that might disqualify us and to put them at the altar as we take Christ in and uh, embrace him in, in all of his uh, mercy and his grace. And so maybe prepare for Thursday. If, if that's in your spot, maybe there's a moment that the Lord has prepared for you to speak his delight into you once again. But finally, we have grandparents here with us today, and I want to acknowledge you. And I don't want to put anyone in the spot here, but maybe if your grandparent is here, um, sometime over the course of their visit, maybe just ask them how or what they've learned about God's grace and mercy in their lives. Um, it's a, a unique opportunity for you to have face-to-face uh, -face time with wizened people in your life. So as we turn now, our hearts now back to worship, however the Lord has spoken to you in this time through this story, I invite you now once again to bring all of who you are and to put them in the hands, in the sturdy hands of God our Lord and Savior. Thanks for listening to this episode of the John Brown University Chapel Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening on, and we'd love it if you would leave us a review.